The reading for this morning is taken from Nehemiah. It's taken from the book of Nehemiah. And we'll be reading from Nehemiah chapter 4. After which we'll sing in response Psalm 127, the verses 1 to 2. Nehemiah chapter 4, the word of God. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. So uh, up to this point in time, just a quick recap. Nehemiah heard about the fact that Jerusalem was in great trouble and shame, that the wall of Jerusalem was broken down and its gates were destroyed by fire. And we did touch down on this a good while ago uh, when we were together and I uh, preached through this. He was the cupbearer to the king and he prayed that the Lord would forgive them and that the Lord would intervene. After that, Nehemiah did interact with the king and the king allowed him to go to Judah. He came and he inspected Jerusalem's walls and he prepared to build again. And then we have the rebuilding of the wall in chapter 3. So chapter 4 again. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it to themselves? Will they sacrifice Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah, the Ammonite, was beside him. And he says, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he'll break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt. And let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and caused confusion in it. Then we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. 
So the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in the open places, I stationed the people by their clans, with their swords and their spears and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us, and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half my servants worked on the construction, and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the people, The work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us, took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. So far, the word of God. The text that we'll be reading is taken from Nehemiah 4 as well. We'll be reading verse 14, but we'll also be taking the whole passage into account. So verse 14. I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So far. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. When I see the words of Psalm 127 that we just sang, unless the Lord will build a house, its builders only toil in vain. The city's guards keep watch in vain, unless the Lord their cause espouse. In all the labor of your hands, success on God alone depends. When I see these words, I can almost imagine Nehemiah looking on this psalm. It would have been a psalm that he was aware of. And at this point in time, when he's building the walls of Jerusalem, when he's busy setting a guard and his men are keeping watch over the city, these words would have been words that would have echoed through his heart. It would have been very meaningful for him. Especially the second half of that particular verse in Psalm 127 with the Lord guarding the city and would have been significant for him in this time. 
Now, why would that be the case? Well, if we look at verse 7 of Nehemiah chapter 4, we can see the situation that Nehemiah finds himself in. To the north, you have the people of Samaria, under Sanballat, who are opposing him. To the east, you have Tobiah and the Ammonites. To the south, you have the combined nations which formed the Arab state. And to the west, you had the conquered Philistines under their new Persian provincial capital, Ashdod. They were surrounded, and there was terror on every side. From our perspective, the Jews started off with so much hope, so much potential. When you look at the previous chapters of Nehemiah, you have a sense of excitement as you're following along with Nehemiah who comes down to the Jews and he's got this burden on his heart for rebuilding the wall. We're excited to see them step up to the task of rebuilding. But what we need to realize is that this same sense that we get when we see it from our perspective it might not have been the same feeling that the people of Israel themselves felt being in the middle of the situation. They haven't seen God at work through Nehemiah from the beginning of the book like we have. They just find themselves sitting surrounded on every side by enemies. Now when they hear Nehemiah come and they they, uh, hear him speak to them, then they themselves get fired up and enthusiastic. And we can see that in the previous chapters of Nehemiah. They're just starting to obey. And the the potential that they see leads to some enthusiasm. But they are in part building off of their emotional momentum given to them by Nehemiah's success. They themselves, however, haven't followed him on his four-month journey of crying out to the Lord, depending on Him and receiving an answer. And now, just as they're beginning to be faithful, just as they've committed themselves to obedience to the Lord, they receive opposition. First of all, it begins in a bit of a minor way. The opposition comes in the form of mockery. You get Sanblad saying, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they revive stones from heaps of rubbish? Stones that are burned? Tobiah, the Ammonite official. Whatever they build, if even a fox goes up on it, he'll break down their stone wall. Next, as the building continues, the opposition comes in the form of a conspiracy. A coalition of the four surrounding nations to attack this weak but growing state in Israel. Finally, the opposition comes from within. The Jews who heard the threats are spreading rumors. The strength of the laborers is failing. And the Jews of the surrounding towns are saying, they're saying to the people, you must return to us. In other translations, you might find the... Uh, the phrase there, from whatever place you turn, they'll be upon us. And that's the idea that you find here. The Jews are coming to them and saying, come back to us, because if you stay there, you will be overwhelmed, you will be destroyed. 
It's in this hopeless situation that the men of Judah are called into battle formation. Goldsmiths, priests, merchants, perfumers, leaders of districts, everyone who is working on the wall in chapter 3 and everyone else they can muster is called to gather together. They are to put into family groups. They are to gather together into family groups and set behind the weakest defenses, the lower parts of the wall, with their swords and spears and bows. And in the power of the Lord, Nehemiah looks to them. He arises and he speaks to them. And he says, do not be afraid. Now today, brothers and sisters, we'll see how this call of Nehemiah is both a call to remembrance and a call to action. You hear the words, do not be afraid, as Nehemiah is standing there in front of these these troops of men. And it might bring to mind the idea of calls to action or war that you find throughout history. Today in the world, you'll find that people love these calls to action, to stand in the face of overwhelming odds. There's something about a pre-battle speech that stirs the hearts of men and gives them courage. Even when reading about them, we feel a shot of adrenaline that gets our hearts racing. In history, we read a famous speech by Winston Churchill to the demoralized population of England. They had just been under constant bombings, constant air raids. And he says to them, Never give in. Never give in. Never, never Never, never in nothing, great or small, large or petty, never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force, never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. We stood all alone a year ago, and to many countries it seemed that our account was closed. We were finished. Very different is the mood today. Britain, other nations thought, had drawn a sponge across her slate. But instead our country stood in the gap. There was no flinching and no thought of giving in. And by what seemed almost a miracle to those outside these islands, though we ourselves never doubted it, we now find ourselves in a position where I say that we can be sure that we only have to persevere to conquer. A rousing speech, isn't it? It's a good technique for getting the people on board, for stirring up their hearts in response. And yet this is not the tactic that Nehemiah takes. He does not make his people focus on convictions of honor and on convictions of good sense. He says, do not be afraid. And yet he doesn't primarily call them to fight for what they hold dear. Instead, he calls them not to fear on the basis of one thing. Remember the Lord, great and awesome. Does this sound somewhat familiar to you? If you've read through the book of Nehemiah recently, it might. And there's a reason for that. In chapter 1, we see how Nehemiah called on the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God, to remember his promises. He asked God to remember on the basis of his own faithfulness and the relationship that he had established. That if the people of God repented and turned to him, that he would gather them home. 
Nehemiah recognized his own great sin. He recognized his own guilt. He recognized that he's not coming before a God that can be manipulated by doing the right things, by giving money or saying nice things to those around us. God's hand can't be forced. He's far above us in majesty and power. He's a great and awesome God. So instead, instead of trying to get his people to, to try force the hand of God with sacrifices and with their particular uh, works, he instead directs the attention of the people to the personal bond that God has with his people. That personal bond that's marked by the name Yahweh, the covenant God. God is not just the God who is in control of all the universe. If you can say just with that. He's not just a God who's in control of all the universe. But he's drawn himself into a special relationship with his people. In fact, it's on this basis that his people are able to come to him at all. God is so holy that he can't even stand the sight of sin for a moment. But he has chosen to come into a relationship with his people and to allow them to draw near by the purification that they receive through the covenant ceremonies, through the sacrifices of the law. Now sometimes I think we lose sight of the wonder that we should have at this. Because God is so holy. God is so pure. We have no right to draw near before Him of ourselves. Earlier, I mentioned the Bible text. What is man that you are mindful of Him? The Son of Man that you care for Him. There is no reason apart from his own good pleasure, for God to reach down to man. And yet he chose to, in that covenant relationship, he chose to reach out to man who was demoralized, defeated, who was steeped in sin and corruption. And he says, here, I, out of my own free will, am going to offer you a way to draw near to me, to be purified, to come into my presence. That should fill us with awe and the wonder that God would do that for us, for his people. The words of Nehemiah, these words calling upon Yahweh, are a recognition that God himself has taken the first step, that he has crossed the divide, and that it's only by his mercy that we can come near to him. Now Nehemiah is calling the people of Israel to remember He's calling them to reflect on who that great and awesome God is. And just as the name Yahweh that he used prior, that covenant name, signified to the people to direct their attention to the fact that God has a relationship with his people, the other name for the word, the the other name for the Lord that is used here is significant as well. 
Because here, he uses the name Adonai. Adonai is significant. So why is this the case? The name Adonai proclaims divine authority. This is the name that the people were to remember when the world seemed to be spiraling out of control. When the situation seemed without hope. And when circumstances or people were just too overwhelming. Nehemiah was directing the people to the very same place that he himself turned when things seemed too much. He was directing them to the God who had authority, to the God who was in control. This is so important, brothers and sisters. Sometimes we will will stop at the fact that, sometimes we won't even reach the fact that God has that personal relationship with us. But sometimes we might even just stop there. And we don't really think about that God is in control. We don't take that time to step back and think, God has all of this in His care. It's in His hand. Something might come up that you don't expect. And you think, where is God's plan in this? Something might come up that's hard to deal with. Maybe a loss of job or a loss of a loved one. Maybe a broken down relationship. And you think, where is God in this? Are things seeming out of control? Are you facing opposition? Look to the God who's also declared His name to be Adonai. We see Nehemiah here turning to God as the one who has the ultimate control in the previous chapters. And we see that in his prayers, in this very chapter that we are looking at today, that he is also turning to this God. He says in verse 4, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own heads and give them as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you. For they have provoked you to anger before the builders. And again, when the people are conspiring against them, we read in verse 9, Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God. And because of them, we set a watch. What was Nehemiah doing here? He was directing the eyes of his people beyond themselves. He was saying, things seem uncontrollable, but we have a God in heaven who's great and mighty. We have a Lord in heaven who is rock solidly in control. Even when our world seems to be in chaos. He's bringing the cry of the psalmist in Psalm 61 verse 2 to life. From the end of the earth I cry to you. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Brothers and sisters, God is in control. He is the one who has divine authority. There is nothing that is so out of control that it is out of His reach. Nothing that is so senseless that He can't make sense of it all. He's there watching over it. And He's in control. And for us, for us, that should be enough. 
and when it is not enough, when because of guilt, sin, loss, sorrow, desperation, or a myriad of other reasons we feel broken down and abandoned, we can cry to this God, to this Adonai. Lead me to you. Let me take comfort in your faithfulness. Lead me to have assurance in the fact that you are Adonai, the one with divine authority, that you are the one who is in control. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. This leads us into our second point. One of the most remarkable verses in this passage is Nehemiah 4, verse 9. Here we read, And we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. Isn't that remarkable? We pray to our God and then we set a watch. We pray to our God, to our God, and we set a guard. I think there's probably no other text that speaks more strongly about combining trust in the sovereignty of God and human responsibility than this particular one. We prayed to our God and we set a guard. What Nehemiah does in our text brings to life this very same mentality. He gathered the people according to their families, placed them on a war footing, and he says, fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. But he doesn't do so blindly. As we saw before, he does this in light of the fact that they have remembered who the Lord is. They have remembered. Their God is the one who drove the Canaanites out of the land before them. Their God is the one who made them victorious when all the odds were against them. Their God fought for them when they were fleeing from the Egyptians. And their God would continue to provide for them in the here and now. He wasn't just the God who was in control back in the day. He wasn't just the God who who stood over his people as a guard when they were being led out. No, he was a God who was watch over them in the here and now. And so they act. They don't act despite the fact that God is in control. But they act because God is in control. They recognize that He is the one who provides the outcome. And now they've taken to heart the saying that we find in Proverbs 21 verse 31. The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but victory is of the Lord. They recognize that they have called out to the Lord now. And throwing all of their cares on Him... They'll do the best that they can and set a watch. And they'll trust that He will provide the outcome. Now the point which comes next, which I think is of utmost importance, the the point which comes next is a point which I think is of utmost importance. Because this is a point which I think many of us forget today. We say, remember the Lord, the great and awesome God. But we forget the part that follows. Fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. So we 
pray to the Lord, but then we don't set a guard. We're in an ongoing spiritual struggle in which we do acknowledge the sovereignty of God, but we forget the need to make war. And not only should you make war, but move to the most vulnerable points of defense in your life. Cut out what tempts you to sin. Shore up and build what has become weak. Protect the most precious parts of your life. We often fall short there too. In the busyness of day-to-day life, we forget to protect, to shore up these precious parts of our lives. And here I'm thinking of our relationships in particular. That is the very thing that Nehemiah calls his people to fight for. And that's the very thing our God calls us to fight for today. Today here in Alora. First of all, we need to fight for our relationship with God. That's the groundwork for our defense against the devil and his minions. And that's why it's absolutely necessary to set apart time every day for our God. Every day for devotional time with God. It doesn't have to be long. But as with every relationship, it takes time. Foster it because it's fuel for your spiritual battle. It's bringing reinforcements behind the walls to those low parts in your life. It's food for your soul. Don't starve yourself. Second, our relationship with our spouse. That might come as a surprise to some of you, but it's true. This is the relationship which comprises the backbone of your interactions with people on earth. The home ought to be the safe haven where both of you can come before the Lord together and seek Him as the center of your relationship. A big part of creating such an atmosphere is unity and devotion. However, it's a difficult thing. I often hear refrains like, oh, we're too busy for that. Too busy for the second most important relationship in your existence here on earth? Think very careful. Think very carefully before suggesting that. Another refrain is, we go to bed at different times. Well, that's easy to solve. Go to uh, do your devotions when the early person goes to bed. And the night hawk can carry on. We're too tired. Well, that may be the case. But if building up your spouse spiritually requires sacrifice on your part, if reading the Bible together, talking about it for a few minutes, and praying together, praying for each other, requires sacrifice on your part, then so be it. Is it not worth it for the most important human relationship that your God has given you to nurture on this earth. It doesn't need to be long, but it does need to exist. Then you'll find that even in this relationship together, Christ's words ring true. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you as well. You'll find that you're shoring up the defenses in your own walls, in your own lives, where things are weak, 
where things are broken down. You're bringing reinforcements. And this is so valuable. Why do I stress this so much? When you're in a spiritual war, the devil will try to destroy what makes you the strongest. A husband and a wife presenting a united spiritual front will be able to withstand much. But a house that's ambivalent, a house that doesn't really care, will be easily divided. And a house that's divided against itself will fall. Make war. You may not think that your time together is time that you need to fight for. But it is a key refuge in your fight against the devil. You may not have times when this is possible. There may be seasons where it's difficult, if impossible, to maintain this as a routine, and that's a life. But make sure that these seasons are a departure from the routine and not the routine themselves. Maintain it. Build it. Fight for it. Get those reinforcements behind the walls. Fight for your wives. Finally, fight for your children. Because that's usually the very next thing that the devil goes for. The weakest and the defenseless. It's your job as husband and wife to protect your children to the best of your ability against the attacks of the devil. Now, of course, you can't exactly strap on a sword and shield and and go to war. This is a spiritual battle we're talking about. So the only way that you can do this is by raising them up in the fear of the Lord. You can't fight their spiritual battles for them. That's certainly true. But you can create the best atmosphere possible for them and equip them. Recently, we were at the Eastern Ministerial Conference, and this was a point which the speaker there drove home in particular. It was the question, do you do family worship? Do you set aside the time for that? Or are your children just exposed to that, that one chapter that you read at the mealtime and, and, and close the Bible and don't really talk about it and, and put it away, if you do that at all? Do you spend time in family worship, interacting with your children? He stressed this especially in light of the fact that we had the Reformation coming up, that we're the heirs to the Reformation. That was something that they fought for. That was something that they struggled for. Remembering that we're going to be having the commemoration of the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses to the door in Wittenberg on October 31st. Is a reminder to reflect on this. For those of you who might want to have help in this, who don't know how you're going to go about this, he did recommend the Family Worship Bible Guide. It takes one chapter from each section of the Bible and it talks about that and it asks questions of the children. The Family Worship Bible Guide. Teach your children to fear the Lord. 
model for them how to seek Him, how to love Him, and how to cherish a relationship with them. Show them how much God means to you and what an impact it has on your work ethic, on your treatment of them, and your overall life. And let them know that it's God who's blessing you on this journey, that it's God who's blessing you on this fight in your life. Listen to the call of Nehemiah. Listen to the call of God and fight for your family. Fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. But above all of this, above all, remember how it's framed here in Nehemiah. All of this is done in remembrance of the fact that it is the Lord, Adonai, the one who has divine authority, who grants the strength to fight in these relationships. And who grants us the zeal to seek Him first. Of ourselves, it's impossible to seek God and to place Him first and foremost in our relationships. And it's okay to recognize this. Because that drives us all the more to seek our general and king in this war, to flee to Jesus Christ. In his death and resurrection, he has fought the war and he has obtained the final victory. We don't have a general who calls us simply, never give up. But we have one who has fought and won the final victory. And when we come to Him, although we cannot fight for ourselves, we have a more perfect champion who will fight for us and who will equip and strengthen us in this fight. Christ has obtained His Spirit for us, who is able to give us the strength to do the impossible, to seek God even in our lowest times. He gives us the hope to seek Him out, even in our broken relationships. And He gives us the continual drive to say, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. And in Him we find the strength and hope He provides for this spiritual war. In the strength and hope that He provides for us, we can say, never give up. Never, never, never. Amen. In response to the proclamation of the word, let's sing together from Psalm.